Welcome, welcome everyone to Wellbeing Wednesdays. I am your host, Courtney Weaver. I am also the director over at WellWVU here at West Virginia University. Today I am all by myself sitting here. Actually, I'm sitting in my kitchen as I recall, but that's okay that I'm by myself because I can prattle on about pretty much anything. So uh, today what we're actually going to talk about is HIV because on the day this episode is released, uh, which is Wednesday, December 1st, December 1st is actually World AIDS Day. So I thought it was a great opportunity to share a little bit of information on HIV and how that can progress into AIDS. So let's get started. So first of all, most of this information is pulled from a website that is just hiv.gov, and I will link to that into the description of the podcast. So let's cover a few of the basics on HIV. So what does HIV actually stand for? Well, it stands for human immunodeficiency virus. And now HIV is transmitted through the exchange of certain bodily fluids. So those include semen and pre-ejaculatory fluid, vaginal secretions, rectal fluids, breast milk, and blood. Approximately 1.2 million people in the United States are living with HIV, but about 13% of those people don't know it and need to get tested. And another thing that's important to know about HIV is that it continues to disproportionately impact certain populations, uh, particularly racial and ethnic minorities and gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men. So new HIV infections are on the decline. They've declined about 8% from 2015 to 2019. And HIV diagnoses are not evenly distributed across states or regions. So it's not like all 50 states are affected equally. Uh, The highest rates of new diagnoses actually continue to occur in the South. When I worked in Florida, a lot of the resources by the State Department of Health were geared toward the prevention of HIV. Now, what does AIDS stand for? So AIDS stands for Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome, and it's the most advanced stage of HIV infection. I think that's still one of those big misconceptions out there that people can quote unquote catch AIDS and and you can't. What happens is that you become infected with HIV, and if you're not on HIV treatment, eventually your body's immune system will weaken and it will progress to AIDS. So the S stands for syndrome. Syndrome, what that means is basically just a collection of symptoms and we'll talk about that in a little while about when someone receives an AIDS diagnosis, what that actually means and what is happening in their body at that time. So let's talk transmission of HIV. So it is, uh, we talked about the fluids that it spreads through. And so really, when you think about that and how that happens, you're thinking about specific activities. So for example, having vaginal or anal sex with someone who has HIV without using a condom or taking medication to prevent or treat treat HIV. So that's how one of the ways it can be spread. Anal sex is riskier than vaginal sex, and that's for a number of reasons. First of all, the anus, unlike the vagina, produces no natural lubrication. So that means the tissue, which is also very thin, is at more risk for tearing. And when tearing happens, that that means blood appears. And anytime blood is involved, the risk gets a little bit higher. Another activity that it can be spread through is sharing intravenous drug equipment, such as needles with someone who has HIV. Some of the less common ways include through pregnancy, birth, or breastfeeding. Nowadays, that is less risky just because there are medications that pregnant folks can take that will reduce dramatically the risk of transmitting it to their... And then another one of the less common ways is getting stuck with an HIV-contaminated needle. 
So in rare cases, HIV can be transmitted through oral sex. But again, this has to be very specific circumstances. Generally, oral sex is not so much of a risk for HIV transmission just because the HIV virus itself is really fragile. So if someone ingests someone's sexual fluids, whether that's like semen or vaginal secretions, your stomach acid actually destroys the virus itself because HIV is very fragile. However, if, do, if someone does have like an open or bleeding cut in their mouth and they're engaged in an oral sex with their partner who is living with HIV, the risk of transmission go is higher because there's that presence of blood in their mouth and, the, and those open wounds. Another rare case would be to receive like a blood transfusion or any type of blood product or organ or tissue transplant that's contaminated with HIV. Again, this is this rarely happens nowadays just because there are rigorous testing procedures that exist um, to help prevent this. And then even probably more rarely is being bitten by a person with HIV. And like each of the very small number of cases where this has actually happened, it involved severe trauma with extensive tissue damage and the presence of blood. So it was a really sort of extreme situation. So here's what HIV is not spread by, because I think there are still a lot of misconceptions out there about what fluids or what things transmit HIV. So HIV is not spread by air or water. It is not spread by mosquitoes, ticks, or other insects. It is not transmitted through saliva, through tears, or sweat that is not mixed with the blood of a person living with HIV. It is not spread by shaking hands, hugging, sharing toilets, sharing dishes, silverware, drinking glasses, engaging in closed mouth or social kissing with a person with HIV. It is not spread through drinking fountains. It is not spread through other sexual activities that don't involve the exchange of bodily fluids. And I'm going to say it one more time for the people in the back. Saliva does not transmit HIV. I think in my 10 years doing this work on college campuses, that's still probably the number one thing that students tend to have a belief about, that saliva can transmit HIV, and that is not the case. So now let's talk about the symptoms of HIV. So there are several symptoms, uh, but not everyone will have the same ones, and it will depend both on the person and on what stage of the disease that they're in. So HIV can be divided up into three stages. The first stage, also creatively named stage one, is what's also known as acute HIV infection. So within two to four weeks after contracting HIV, about two-thirds of people will have a flu-like. So this is the body's natural response to the HIV infection. And so if you experience this, your symptoms will include things like fever, chills, uh, you might get a rash, night sweats, muscle aches, sore throat, fatigue, swollen lymph nodes, and mouth ulcers. And so these symptoms can last several days to several weeks. But some people don't have any symptoms at all during this early stage of HIV. But if you start experiencing these flu-like symptoms, don't just assume that you have HIV. These symptoms can be caused by other infections, including other STIs. And so the only way to know for sure is to get tested. And just remember the opposite of that is also true. So just because you feel fine, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are not infected or you have not contracted something. So the only way to know for sure is to get tested and we'll cover testing in a little bit. But I think it's important to reiterate that the most common symptom of an STI is no symptoms. And so the only way to know for sure is to engage in regular testing practices. 
So stage two of HIV infection is what's also called clinical latency. So this is when the virus still multiplies inside your body, but at very low levels. It's possible that folks who are in this stage do not feel sick or have any symptoms. So without treatment, people can stay in this stage for up to 10 to 15 years, but some do move through it fast. With treatment taken every day and exactly as prescribed, this can lower your viral load count to levels that are undetectable, which protects not just your health, but also the health of your sexual partners. And that's one of the things when we talk about treatment is that the medications nowadays have advanced so, so much. The HIV epidemic started that now you get your viral count down so low that it becomes undetectable. And when it's undetectable, it's not transmissible. And that's a really important marker to sort of achieve. So stage three of HIV infection is um, at the point where someone would receive an AIDS diagnosis. So when someone gets this diagnosis, that means that one of two things has happened. Either your T cell count, which are a type of cell in your immune system, that drops below 200. Now healthy level counts are usually between 500 and 1600. So if it drops below that 200, that's when you'd get that diagnosis of acquired immune deficiency syndrome. Or the second thing that could have happened is that you develop one or more opportunistic infections, and that is regardless of the T-cell count. Now, you might ask, what is an opportunistic infection? So an opportunistic infection is an infection that people with a healthy active immune system can fight off very easily, but folks with a compromised system cannot. And these illnesses kind of move in and take advantage. Now, again, one of those misconceptions is that people think that a common head cold is an opportunistic infection, and it's not. But pneumonia is. Pneumonia is the most common one here in the United States for folks living with HIV, and worldwide actually the most common opportunistic infection would be tuberculosis. And because the issue is that your immune system is so badly damaged from the virus, it makes you more susceptible to a number of those severe illnesses. So symptoms that someone might experience would be, uh, at this particular stage, would be rapid weight loss, recurring fever or profuse night sweats, extreme and unexplained tiredness, prolonged swelling of the lymph glands in the armpits, groin, or neck, uh, diarrhea that lasts for more than a week, sores in the mouth, anus, or genitals, uh, you might develop pneumonia, uh, red, brown, pink, or purplish blotches on or under the skin or inside the mouth, nose, or eyelids, uh, memory loss, depression, and then other neurologic disorders. So without treatment, people living with AIDS typically survive about three years. Once someone is diagnosed with an opportunistic infection, however, life expectancy without treatment falls to about one year. Now, HIV medication can still help people who are at this late stage of infection, and it can be life savings. Life saving, not savings, saving. But people who start ART, which is the, it's called, it stands for antiretroviral therapy. So people who start ART soon after they contract HIV experience more benefits. So, which is why testing is so important to get that early diagnosis so you can get into a treatment plan. Okay, so now let's talk testing. Remember, the only way to know if you've contracted HIV or really any other STI is to get tested. So when we're looking at HIV tests specifically, 
it can be a little tricky because most HIV tests, pretty much every, all the ones that you see that are what's called rapid results tests. So basically you would get a finger prick um, or a mouth swab and you get the results in like 10 to 20 minutes. That's what I'm referring to here. Those actually test not for the virus itself, but for HIV antibodies. Now, what this means in the long run is that actually your body needs time to make those antibodies. So if someone went out last night and thought they were exposed to HIV, if they went in this morning and got tested using an antibody test, the test wouldn't be accurate because your body has, doesn't have enough time to make those antibodies. So the body needs at least two weeks, but it can take up to three months. And so this is what's called the window period, that two week to three month time. So you just need to sort of wait after between the exposure and the testing window to get an accurate result. Now, generally it's recommended by the CDC that if you think you've been exposed to HIV, that you get tested at two weeks, three months, and then again at six months, just to make sure that you don't have a false. But if you do think that you've been exposed, it's incredibly important um, that if you engage in sexual behavior, that you practice safer sex practices. So using like an internal or external condom or a dental dam, if you're engaging in any kind of sexual activity, because if you are infected with HIV, what that means is that you're at your highest viral load, which means you're at your most infectious in that first couple of weeks of infection. So if you think you've been exposed, just make sure you're practicing those safer sex practices. Now, there are some tests that do test for the virus itself, but generally those have to be specifically requested. And not, it's possible that not everyone or every organization has the capability to do them. But again, if that's something that you're interested in, like call ahead or ask when it's that time for at the appointment. And generally those tests would require more of a full blood draw rather than something like a finger poke or a mouth swab. So in terms of prevention for HIV, there have actually been some really cool medical advancements that have happened in the past couple of years or so. But let's start with more of the basics. Obviously, abstinence is a great way to prevent any kind of sexually transmitted infection because if you're not engaging in sexual behavior, then you are not putting yourself or your partner at risk. But again, not everyone wants to practice abstinence and that's okay too. So another good way to prevent the spread of HIV specifically is to use barrier methods when you're engaging in sex. So that would be things like external and internal condoms. So you wanna make sure that those condoms are made of, or polyisoprene. Internal condoms are made of synthetic nitrile. That's also a good material. However, you do not want to use lambskin condoms. Those aren't really as available as they used to be back in like the 80s and 90s. But lambskin condoms, the issue here is actually the pores that create the material of the condom itself are actually big enough for the HIV virus to sort of slip through. So they prevent, they can help prevent pregnancy, but they can still that doesn't prevent the spread of HIV. So no lambskin condoms. Generally, those are pretty hard to find nowadays anyway. I know we do not carry them at WellWVU because really we want to prevent STIs and any kind of barrier method that doesn't really work for that. You know, we don't want to have that available to students. So again, those are something that you probably have to hunt for. Now, another amazing invention that has happened in the past couple of years in the prevention of HIV is something called PrEP. 
So P-R-E-P. Uh, PrEP stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. And it's actually a pill that is taken daily to help reduce the risk of contracting HIV through sexual activity. And actually, it is incredibly effective. It is something that you have to be prescribed by a healthcare professional for. And those folks who do take it, generally they have to be, their like liver function and stuff has to be monitored. So it will have to be under the care of a healthcare provider, but it is becoming more and more widely available. And I, I also know that they're working on a generic version of the pill as well. So if you're interested in that, I recommend that you talk to your healthcare provider. It is only prescribed to those who are assigned male at birth. Um, but again, if you are at high risk for contracting HIV, it is a great option. And I, I just think it's like so cool that we've achieved this great scientific advancement. So there's another pill that you might have heard of, and that's called PEP, which is actually post-exposure prophylaxis. Generally, this isn't widely available to the public. It is usually used in situations in like healthcare where someone might have been stuck by a needle or anything like that. And it's medication that's taken within a certain time frame after the exposure to help prevent the infection. Again, it's not something that's widely available to the public, but it again, it's one of those really cool, you know, advancements that have taken place that I think it's, it's worth knowing about for sure. Other prevention methods uh, are very similar to other STIs. So make sure that you are communicating with your sexual partner about your sexual history. And no, I'm not just talking about what folks like to call their body count. That actually has little to no meaning. What's important to discuss with your partner is the sexual activity that you've engaged in before, how you've protected yourself, you know, have you been tested? Should you go and get tested together? That kind of stuff. So that's another good way I mean, just to work on your open communication skills, but also to keep you and your partner safe. So that about does it for me. That was a fairly brief introduction to HIV and AIDS. We could do about 18 more podcasts about you know, how this disease has affected the different communities, uh, not just here in the United States, but around the world. But unfortunately, we don't have time for that today. But thank you all so much for listening. Um, and we appreciate your time. We'll have one more episode after this for the semester, and then we'll be taking a break uh, until spring. But thank you again so much for listening. And we will catch you next time on Wellbeing Wednesdays. Wellbeing Wednesdays.